like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11. Ecclesiastes, chapter 11. I'm going to read the first six verses of that passage in just a moment. But if you have your Bibles open, it would be great. You'll be ready for that occasion uh, when it comes. Uh, like most of you probably did, uh, we spent some time this week decorating our house for Christmas. And when it comes to our Christmas tree, we have an overflowing box of ornaments and the reason that our box of, over, of ornaments is overflowing is because we have never, ever thrown any Christmas ornament away. So if you have had one of my children in Sunday school or children's church and you made a macaroni or paper angel ornament, we have it and it goes on our tree every year. Uh, we have a tradition that the ones that are particularly ugly we hang on the back of the tree, but they get on the tree. Uh, here's an ornament that is in our collection, and uh, we've had it for a number of years, and every time I open the box and see this ornament, I feel this terrible pang of guilt. Uh, let me tell you why. Um, this ornament uh, has the year 2005 on it, and it's got a nice Christmas greeting written on the back. And we were supposed to get this ornament at a Christmas party that we were invited to on December 16th, 2005. Uh, one of our friends was hosting a party and made plans, invited a small group of people, and purchased these ornaments as gifts and mementos of that year's celebration. Uh, we were invited to the party, we accepted the invitation, and then completely forgot about it. I don't know where we were or what we were doing, but I do remember coming home and seeing there was a message on our answering machine, and it was the hostess saying... We're here and we're ready to start. Uh, I hope you'll be here soon. That's just a terrible feeling, isn't it? Um, we usually don't make mistakes like that. I, I, I called. I apologized. We did not have a good excuse. We weren't doing anything important. We just forgot to go. Uh, and then uh, the next time we saw them, they gave us this commemorative ornament, ornament <laughs> that they had carefully prepared for that evening and it joined our collection because we don't throw ornaments away. So every year I open the ornament box and inside I find a treasury of memories. There's a brass bugle, a little brass bugle that my friends the Saunders gave me when I was in high school. There is a, a glass bird that um, Kathy's grandmother gave her when she was a little girl. It uh, has place of prominence on our tree. It's got to be right in front of a light so it sparkles. Uh, there is a little wooden map of Texas that we got at a Sunday school Christmas party in 1997. Uh, we have a couple of ornaments that Dot Immel knit for us. We have a seashell with glitter on it that the Wood family gave us several years ago. We have an ornament that my sister bought when she visited Thailand before she got married. We still have a few of the ornaments that say our first Christmas together. They've been around for a long time. Um, and then there's this one, this graphic reminder of my failure. And it goes on the tree. Now, some of you, so I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, man, what is wrong with you? Like, this is the thing that bothers you? You've done a lot worse things than that, man. You've done worse things to me. Why is this the one that rings the bell of your conscience? I, some of you are thinking that, and, and you're probably right. 
that some of you are thinking, okay, dude, it's been like 14 years. It's time to throw that away. All right. Why would you do that every year? Put yourself through that, uh, the, the, this guilt reminder. Just get rid of it. No one will know. But there's something very Ecclesiastes-like about this ornament. There's something about it that I think that teacher, the man who wrote this book, would appreciate about it. Most of the ornaments I have remind me of the blessings and joys of life. They remind me of old friendships and happy seasons of life. They remind me of the generosity and thoughtfulness of others. Um, I see the growth of my children in all of the pictures, uh, the picture ornaments that we have. This ornament reminds me of a friend that I failed, which is also part of my story. And it's part of your story too, I imagine. Life, is, life under the sun is filled with blessings and it's filled with joy and it's filled with deep and abiding sorrow, both, all of those things together. We live in a broken world. We human beings live in the world in which we have shut God out, we have rebelled against Him, we have chosen to go our own way, and life without God is bleak. It's very bleak. And the NIV uses one of the, translates one of the teacher's favorite words. He uses the word meaningless. So much of life is meaningless. It's a good word most of the time to describe life. And not all the time. Some of life is very good. It is meaningful. But it's meaningless still in the sense that the good times don't last forever. They pass away like the morning mist that burns off of the, uh, it's burned off by the rising sun. Life is a vapor. It's mysterious. It's short. It's scary and sometimes very beautiful. And the teacher has been trying to help us live by faith in this broken world. And we've covered a variety of topics. We've, we've talked about work and politics and death and marriage and uh, justice. And now in chapter 11, we're going to return to the subject of money. The teacher wants you to know that there are a number of ways for you to fail when it comes to using your money. When we think about failure and money, we most often think about valuing it too highly, about loving it too much, greed or envy or materialism, thinking that money is everything, thinking that money is is more important than anything else, that if you have enough of it, then you'll be truly happy. This week I saw a clip from the show The Price is Right. You know, you know the show, The Price is Right. If you're of my generation, a little bit before and a little bit after, The Price is Right is what you watched on television when you were homesick from school. There were only three channels, maybe PBS back then, and, and The Price is Right was the best thing on at 11 a.m. Well, um, a central part of that show is spinning the wheel. I'm not going to explain it because I think you all know it. Um, uh, if you spin the wheel and it lands in the right spot, you can win money. Well, Uh, In 2017, there was a day on The Price is Right when all three contestants got a dollar when they spun the wheel and they won $10,000. And then, uh, what are the chances of that happening, right? Then uh, two uh, candidates got to spin again for a bonus round and two of them won $25,000 more. You should have seen the audience. I don't know what chemicals they pump into that soundstage, but... Everyone in that room was jumping and cheering. They were, they were crying. They were hugging each other. It was, it was euphoria. And I watched this clip and I thought to myself, what must they think of us overseas when they show the prices right on television? <laughs> right? 
that we would be this ecstatic over money because money is everything. That's one way to go wrong when it comes to money. But in chapter 11, the teacher has something else for us to think about, another way to fail when it comes to using your money, and it has to do with how you think about risk and how you think about fear. His goal, the teacher's goal, he wants you to use your money wisely and boldly even when you don't know what might happen tomorrow. Uh, let's read the text, shall we? Let's read Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6 this morning, and then uh, we'll continue. Uh, my translation says, Ship your grain across the sea. Yours might begin, cast your bread upon the waters. We'll talk about that in a minute. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever, patches, whoever watches excuse me, the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. There's a line that's repeated three times in this text. I'm not sure if it stood out to you. You do not know. You do not know. You do not know. You can fail to manage your money wisely in a variety of ways. You can be so afraid of what you do not know that you hide and hoard your money to your harm. And the teacher wants you, despite the risks, despite what you don't know, he wants you to use your money wisely and boldly. Let's follow how he makes his case. I think there's two pieces of his argument. First, he's going to be honest with us, and he's going to remind us what we don't know. The world is full of unknowns. There are things you do not know. And the teacher tells us what they are. Uh, three things you don't know. First, you don't know what the future holds. You don't know what the future holds. Now, this is simple. Everybody knows this. You don't know the future. I know that you don't know the future. The teacher knows that you don't know the future. But he says, he says this because he's trying to jar you out of a certain paralysis caused by fear. You don't know. No one knows. No one who has ever tried anything new knew the future when they tried it. Look what verse 2 says. Um, you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. You don't know. Disaster may come. It's possible. Verse 6 you don't know which will succeed, whether this or that. It is almost a certainty that some of the things that you invest in, some of the things that you try, some of the things you work on will not succeed. You don't know which. Acknowledge this up front. Not all my plans are going to work out the way I want them to work. Uh, are you okay with that? I don't think it matters whether you're okay with it or not. It's what is. I remember several years ago hearing Mark Dever talk about a pastor, J.D. Greer. J.D. Greer is a, a fine pastor in North Carolina. And um, Mark Dever introduced him at a conference by standing up and saying, J.D. Greer has tried a thousand things and 50 of them have worked. 
and we were listening to the introduction, we kind of chuckled a little bit. It's, it sounded like an insult, but Mark Dever did not mean it at all to be an insult. What he was saying was, this guy's done 50 things that worked really well. And people who don't try anything don't have any successes. You don't know what the future holds. Now here's the second thing you don't know. You don't know what God has planned. Verse 5, as you don't know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. The teacher is writing about two of the great mysteries that his ancient audience would have faced. The weather and the formation of babies in the womb. We have satellite technology. We have ultrasounds. We know quite a bit more about the wind and the development of a baby. But imagine what these ancient people didn't know, how much they didn't know about the wind and the development of a baby. One of my favorite stories related to this has to do with the terrible hurricane that struck Long Island in 1938. Maybe you've heard about this. A man woke up, one man uh, who had a house in Long Island woke up. The sky was blue. It was beautiful. The air was clear. It was still. And his barometer said that a terrible storm was coming. The barometer was new. and He was disgusted with it, so he packed it up. Sure, it was defective. And, and drove to the post office to return it to Sears where he'd bought it. And before he got home from the post office, by the time he got to his house, it wasn't there anymore because the hurricane had come and taken down his house. You don't know. Nowadays, uh, most expectant parents find out whether they're having a boy or girl. It's, it's very common, of course. It was not really an option when I was born. Uh, no one knew. Kathy and I have a friend who is a twin her mother found out she was having twins in the delivery room. That's the way it was all the way back in the dark ages of the 1970s. <laughs> you don't know. Now, notice how the teacher attributes the ups and downs of life to the work of God. Here again is an affirmation of the sovereignty of God. You don't understand the work of God, the maker of all things. He works out Things. He works everything out according to the purposes of his will, but he doesn't consult with us and he doesn't tell us in advance what he's going to do. You can believe in the sovereignty of God. You can be a man or woman of great faith, but it doesn't erase the uncertainty in how God's plans are going to unfold. Now think for a minute with me about how the Apostle James sought to apply this to some businessmen he knew. Uh, look at James 4.13. Look what he says. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I think James was reading Ecclesiastes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. It's evil. It's arrogant to plan as if you have complete control over what will happen because you don't. It is, it's boasting to make your plans as if God is not the sovereign of the universe. Here's something else you don't know. You don't know how circumstances will affect you. You don't know how circumstances will affect you. You don't know how the changing circumstances of life will affect you. Verse 3 is odd. Verse 3 has to be written, I'm sure, by 
Captain Obvious. Right? If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. That is an amazing insight. Uh, actually, he, he's talking about uh, the inevitabilities of life. There are things in life that are inevitable. Absolutely. The problem is you don't know how what is inevitable will affect you. The economy, it works in cycles. There's booms and busts, and you don't know where you're going to be during those booms and busts. There's inevitabilities that just happen. There are accidents that happen in life, and you don't know how they will affect you. Captain Obvious continues. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Brilliant. No tree, once it falls, looks around and says, I don't like where I am, and moves. <laughs> right? Where it falls, there it will lie. Now the problem is, well, if the tree falls to the north and your house is on the south, good for you. But if the tree falls to the south, well, huh, you didn't know. You don't know how the inevitabilities of life and you don't know how the accidents of life are going to affect you. There is a lot that you don't know. And there's a great danger in not knowing. The danger is, is not, the teacher says the danger is not in what you don't know. There's actually a greater danger than what you don't know. The danger is how you respond to your lack of knowledge. The great danger of your lack of knowledge is that it will lead to paralysis. That it will keep you from doing anything. That's what he describes in verse 4. Um, follow me here. Let's imagine a farmer and it is planting day. It's spring. Time to plant. Uh, so, um, you, you know the ancient story of the sower that Jesus told. You know how they sowed seed. Um, Jesus, of course, lived a few hundred years after this, but uh, the same principle. You get a bag and you have seed in it and you uh, reach in, grab the seed, and you throw it all over the field. You walk over the field and throw the seed. You sow the seed. But what if it's windy? If it's windy, the seed's not going to go where you want it to go. So there's a farmer. He wants you to imagine that he looks out, he watches the wind and says, ah, it's too windy today, no planting. Or it's time for harvest. It's better to harvest if it's not raining. But if there's clouds in the sky, there's a farmer, oh, there's a cloud in the sky, no harvest today, no, let's go home. He's warning you. He is warning you there will always be reasons why you should not start the project. There will always be reasons why you should not invest. There will always be reasons why you should not begin. You don't know what's going to happen, and it's just too risky, so do nothing. But can I suggest to you that sometimes Christian faithfulness requires risk? I think that's one of the messages of one of the parables that Jesus told. It's in Matthew chapter 25. It's one of Jesus' longer parables. It's, it's worth considering. Would you turn in your Bibles? We're going to come back to Ecclesiastes 11. But I'd like you to turn to Matthew 25, if you would, with me. And let's look at this parable that Jesus told. And I want to think about Christian faithfulness and the issue of risk in Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. So Matthew 25, uh, verse 14. Jesus is speaking. He says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey. Now, what's the it 
The it, in context, is the kingdom of heaven. It is uh, the time uh, that is going on right now, as a matter of fact. Jesus was here. He died. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He's coming back again. And, and this period of time is what he's describing. This is this period of time. It's going to be like a man going on a journey. In the interpretation, that, uh, that's Jesus himself. He called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. Verse 15. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. That is very impressive, a 100% return. Good for you. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. Again, excellent. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you had trusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come, share your master's happiness. Same reward, same commendation. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. Now let's think about this before we finish the story. This servant's evaluation of the master. Is he right about his master and how he operates? Um, the passage hinges on what he thinks about the master. This is his, his excuse for his inactivity. Does the master really harvest in other people's fields? Does he really take other people's crops? Is he that harsh of a master? Based on what you know about him and his interaction with his servants, is he a harsh master like this servant thinks I don't think so by all accounts the master is generous he entrusted his wealth to his servants and then he rewards them generously abundantly for their good work come and share my happiness I don't think the servant is right about that that's actually just the beginning of his problem Um, look what the text says verse 26 His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, 
The master says, in essence, if that's what you really think about me, is is that really what you think about me? You really think that I am that stingy and that greedy and that much of a thief? If that's what you think, you should have at least gotten interest for the money that I entrusted into you, to you. But, but you're actually using your twisted understanding of who I am as an excuse for your laziness and your failure to work hard with what I have given you. Christian faithfulness involves taking risks. It requires minimally, if nothing else, investment of some kind. And I don't think the Lord Jesus is going to be satisfied with excuses for inactivity. Why? Because the Lord Jesus himself is worthy of the work. He's worthy of the effort. He is worthy of the risk. He's not glorified by people who think he's small and mean and insignificant. He's glorified for those, uh, for, by those who for his sake make great plans and take bold steps in his name. This is one of the ways that you show that you esteem the Lord Jesus by what you do with the resources that he has entrusted into your care. Burying them, hiding them, hoarding them, even in the face of risk because you're afraid of the unknown future, does not honor him. Now, I fear I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Already venturing into the second emphasis that the teacher is bringing here. There are things you do not know, and what you do not know can paralyze you. That's the first part of the argument that the teacher is making. Now, the second part of the argument is what you should do instead. Here's what you should do instead, even when you don't know. Three things. First, you should invest boldly. Invest boldly. Verse 1 says... Ship your grain across the sea. It's an unusual sentence. It seems to have a a double meaning. We'll talk about that in in just a minute. Let's take it at face value. Uh, The NIV translation is is more of a paraphrase. It's a fine paraphrase. Your ESV or your NASB is is more literal. It captures some of the strangeness of this advice. Cast your bread upon the waters. Well, that's a crazy thing to do. Let's after the service... Go down to the Susquehanna, shall we? And we'll take a loaf of Wonder Bread and we'll all throw it in the water. What would happen? It would sink and it would dissolve. Make some fish happy, I suppose. But, well, um, maybe if we remember that in ancient Israel, bread was more commonly baked, not in our rectangular loaves, but in flat, uh, round sheets, like pita bread. So, so if you throw it in the water, it might actually float for a little bit. But still, this is strange. He mentions the possibility of a return. This is strange. This requires a fair amount of imagination to do. The teacher is encouraging you to invest boldly. Invest boldly knowing that there are risks involved and a return will likely take many days. There are investments you may make. There are, they may be risky. They may sound a little strange. The return may take a little while, but give it a try. You may receive a return. In fact, the return may be quite astounding. I listed the verses. I, we won't take time to read them, but in 1 Kings 9 and 10, it talks about Solomon's ships. They went out on three-year circuits. Solomon sent out these ships and came back, and they brought gold and silver and ivory. The floor of the Mediterranean is covered with shipwrecks. I wonder if any of them are Solomon's. Invest boldly. Have I ever told you about the candy store owner uh, who had a candy shop downtown? I think I've told some of you about this. 
So uh, downtown, uh, two, two storefronts up from the library on Duke Street, there was a shop, and about 15 years ago, uh, a, a new candy store, chocolate store, opened in town. And there was an article, an interview with the uh, new owner in the newspaper, and I, I read it. And uh, by all accounts, as best I could tell by reading the article, the, the candy store owner was a Christian. And the article told about how he bought the building. He was remodeling the rooms upstairs and downstairs in order to provide housing for potential employees. He had this vision. He was going to open this store and then hire people, maybe like at-risk young adults, and train them and give them a place to live. It was a business that he was going to use to serve others. It's a great idea. The candy shop lasted for about a year and then closed. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot I don't know about that candy shop. There's a lot I don't know about it and what happened. For the, but for the past 15 years, I, I drive by that shop and I think about that man and I wonder where he is and I wonder how what he did affected his faith. He was trying to serve the community for Christ's sake and, and it failed. And for 15 years or so, I've been telling myself, be careful, Joel. Be careful not to encourage someone to make that same choice. I don't want to be responsible for a failed business like that, a failed ministry like that. It was a risk and it fell apart. Maybe this passage should change the way I think about that business, though. You don't know what might happen. There are no guarantees. I don't know what God will do, but, but he might bless that effort. Give it a try. Ship your grain overseas. Stock the shelves with candy. Give it a try. Your efforts might collapse. It's possible. I know that. But fearful paralysis does not honor God. Now, I mentioned the double meaning in this passage. Um, uh, it is possible that this passage, based on parallels embedded in the vocabulary, may not be so much about investing as it is about generosity. Not invest boldly, but give boldly. Sidney Gray Donis is an expert in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says that he thinks both, that the teacher implies both. Give boldly and give broadly. Take the risk of giving boldly to those in need. There is potential return there, too, in generosity. Use the resources that God has given you despite the unknowns to invest boldly, to give generously. Hold your possessions loosely. This is in keeping with the teacher's counsel. It's in keeping, is it not, also with the God that we worship? This is the month of the year when we celebrate in a specific way the greatest gift that has ever been given. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God gave us his son so that we might have life in his name. He gave us his son so that we might become adopted into his family. He left his home in heaven and came to earth to rescue us, to uh, reconcile us to God. We, we remembered that gift when he took the Lord's Supper. Thou who wast rich beyond all measure, uh, splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. Stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenwards by thine eternal plan. And without this gift of God, of course, we are without hope. Remember, what we desperately need, need beyond anything else, is to be forgiven for our sins, for our rebellion against God. And we deserve His eternal righteous wrath, but He has given us His Son. His Son who became our sin-bearer, so that all who believe in His name might receive life and forgiveness. 
So the reason followers of Jesus give boldly, the reason we give boldly, is because God himself has given his own son. This sort of generosity is a family trait. So the teacher tells us, invest boldly, give boldly. Second, though, he says, this piece of advice, he says, invest wisely. Invest boldly and invest wisely. That's the point of verse 2. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight. You You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Now, this makes you think, I'm sure, of one of our own Proverbs. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Be bold, yes, but, but be prudent, be wise. There are risks that are foolish that may sink you beyond all recovery. So be wise in how you invest. Work at different things. Verse 6 says, so seed in the morning and, and work at other things in the evening because you don't know what might succeed. So invest boldly and invest wise, wisely. Now third and last, the teacher says, work diligently, work diligently. Verse 6, let your hands not be idle. Work at lots of different things and work hard at them. Don't be afraid to try lots of things. You don't know what will work, so don't be afraid to experiment. Even though you don't know everything, you can try. We have women in our congregation who very much Uh, who are very much like the Proverbs 31 woman. They're trying very different things, lots of different ways to contribute to the family income. They're making this, they're selling that, they're Etsy shopping this, and they have a little business here and a craft show there. And good for you, the teacher would be so proud. Give it a go, something might work. Work diligently at it. In 1962, an executive at the Decca Recording Company reviewed a band for possible consideration, and he said... Um, they rejected the band and he said, we don't like their sound and guitar music is on the way out. Uh, The name of the band he rejected was a little group called The Beatles. Ooh. What a missed opportunity. He was wrong about The Beatles and he was wrong about where popular music was headed. It's possible to miss opportunities. It's possible. You may have already done so. But don't miss them because you're afraid. Don't miss them because you don't know everything. And don't miss them because you think God is too small for the risk. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we acknowledge the wisdom of your word that that you know all of the ways in which we err. We err by loving money too much. We err by our greed and by our envy and by our materialism. And oh, how much of a presence that is in this season. I'm thankful though that you err, you, you tell us by how we err, how we can err from fear, fear of the unknown. Lord, we confess we don't know why you haven't told us more, why you haven't given us more guarantees in this life. Sometimes that that frustrates us. We we wish you would give us more guarantees and and we wish that you would give us more more, um, uh, assurances of, of what will happen tomorrow, where the tree will fall and whether it will rain or how the wind will operate. We wish you would give us 
more of those assurances, but you don't. And, and you tell us instead to be wise and to be bold. So I pray that you, according to your kindness, would endue us with this bold wisdom. We confess that you are worthy of following wholeheartedly, especially with the resources that you have entrusted to our care. Help us to honor you. Grant us courage. Grant us resilience and perseverance. Grant us joy in the management of the things that you have given us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.